Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Look, you've got chapters closing, you've got chapters opening, and some still being written in the very many investigations of the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol. And what happened, of course, in the days leading up to it, and frankly, since that day as well. Now, the clock is ticking, as you know, for the January 6th committee. They're taking their final interviews, and of more than 1,000 actually took place today, the final of more than 1,000. And meeting on Friday now, we're learning, to discuss the possibility of making criminal referrals. That, of course, in the wake of the conspiracy convictions of two oath keepers and with the special counsel's investigation ramping up. The question is, what's all this going to reveal and does it still matter to the electorate? Plus, a new leader in the House as Democrats pick Hakeem Jeffries to succeed Nancy Pelosi the first black lawmaker to lead a party in Congress as a new generation is now changing the face of our politics. And with Team USA and the World Cup spotlight after their thrilling victory over Iran, this is also a very big moment and frankly, a long overdue payday for the women's team. I'll talk to one of the women's World Cup champions and frankly, a personal hero of mine coming up. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. Here with me, CNN anchor and correspondent Audie Cornish, national security attorney Bradley Moss, and Mike Shields, former RNC chief of staff. I'm glad to have you all here. We'll we'll get to the World Cup without you here in the moment, maybe in the break. But let's talk about a different matchup that's happening on Capitol Hill. And really, we are expecting with the new Congress, which is about 34 days away from being you know, sworn in, there are already promises of new investigations. I'm wondering from your perspective and thinking about these moments, what do you think the impact of the culmination of all that we've seen with January 6th and the Oath Keepers trial is going to have on the GOP-led House coming up? It'll be green. It'll be um, goodnighted already. The committee's not going to continue. But Mike, what, what's your take on how this might move forward in maybe a different way? Well, I think what you saw today with, with uh, uh, verdicts coming down in a case is the contrast between when you have the justice system prosecuting people for January 6th, people getting indicted, people getting put in prison, the FBI investigating, a non-political process, and the political process of the January 6th commission, which is politicians on Capitol Hill, with a completely different mission than what the actual justice system is doing. Personally, I believe Republicans like to see anyone who attacked a cop put in jail. And getting in front of grand juries, getting indictments, that's the legal process. What politicians should be doing is, what's the root cause of political violence? Analyzing that in a bipartisan way. That's what should have been going on. That's not what's happened. It turned into, frankly, from our perspective, a bit of a circus, uh, a very partisan committee. But you know, Mike, it didn't necessarily have to be um, a partisan the way you're thinking of. There there was initially the discussion of having an independent commission that was thwarted. Mm -hmm. And then there was the idea of at least having five members 
who were Republicans on the committee. But Kevin McCarthy had a different opinion of that and wanted to have Jim Jordan, another person as well. Does that impact the way that you view what turned into a circus in your mind? It does. And in full disclosure, I do work for Kevin McCarthy. Look, I think it did impact it. There were some precedent-breaking things that happened. Never before had the minority party not been allowed to choose its own committee members on a select committee. So I think going forward, you're going to see that sort of thing happening over and over again, because now that glass has been broken. Those, those norms have been destroyed. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that Speaker-elect McCarthy advocated for was, let's expand this. Let's let the justice system handle prosecuting people. Let's us take a look at political violence. Things like what happened to Paul Pelosi, things that happened to Steve Scalise where he was shot violence in our cities, political violence that's growing in the country. Why don't we as politicians in a bipartisan way look at that? He was Would rejected. Would that have been relevant, though, to January 6th? Absolutely. If meaning, you're gonna- but meaning there was not a full accounting of that day on the record, congressional-wise, and was it the responsibility of Congress to actually figure that out, figure out the, the attempt to disrupt that particular day. Yeah, I, I think that it is a responsibility of Congress to do that in a bipartisan way, in good faith. And if, if you're going to analyze political violence, of course, that was political violence. So you're not going to ignore that. You're going to add it as a larger context so that you don't look like you're just using it as a political cudgel. And that's what it turned into. It turned into, this is a Democrat-led committee. It's very partisan. People so kind Liz of turn, Cheney, it, turn it out and say, it, this is... all that stuff didn't well, mean anything. Li- I mean, she practically led it. That's why I'm right. asking. That, there are a, was a token Republican or two put onto the committee for the sake of politics. But the minority party and their leader were cut out of it. And they weren't allowed to choose their own members. Well, so, I will say, Brad, I, wanna, I, I hear you and I want to get you in here, Brad, because I think, you know, people are champing at the bit in retort because what you're talking about for bipartisan, there was the offer. There was the opportunity to have that. But in, in broader terms, to, to Audie's point, Brad, there is, of course, the umbrella investigations, and you want to unpack everything about political violence generally. But there was the immediate urgency of what happened specifically on January 6th. And and you're an attorney, national security. The idea of wanting to tackle national security as an umbrella term. Then there's a particular action that needed accounting for. Do you see it as more specific? Yeah. And the reason it had to be this uh, focus in terms of January 6th and not the broader, I mean, we could have talked about the summer of 2020, any number of things that dealt with political violence. The reason the January 6th committee focused the way it did was because it was an attack on Congress. It was an attack on the electoral certification process. It was looking into potential legislative fixes to prevent what we learned. People like John Eastman uh, and former President Trump were trying to do to prevent the certification of electoral count. You know, and you mentioned something, and I want to just, you know, make sure this is clear. When, uh, sorry, possibly Speaker McCarthy coming up, was trying to put people like Jim Jordan on the committee, the reason it was unprecedented in terms of rejecting him was because they were material fact witnesses. They ultimately got subpoenaed themselves and, of course, you know, declined to comply, which was their choice to make. But that's why those particular individuals would not be normally sitting on that committee. And it's that kind of thing you would never allow normally in any kind of judicial process if there was one along does, those lines. Does that change Does that change your opinion of that? And, and also, there has been, as we know, it wasn't as if it was just Democrats who were testifying. A lot of the, I think, thing that transfixed a lot of people in the testimony of January 6th, and I admit, every witness was not transfixing. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to pretend that I was captivated by every single person for the entire duration of their testimony. But one thing I found very interesting was that 
there were a lot of Republicans there. I mean, you talk about the tokenism of, say, a, a Congresswoman Liz Cheney, which is likely news to her. Um, but I know she's been called a rhino. But just think of the breadth of people. Does that impact for you how you saw this ultimately turning out? Or, or is the issue, if I hone in more, is it you're not satisfied by the outcome, but you haven't had the answers yet? I think when you were in... I, look, I... I think Congress investigating an attack on Congress is a very legitimate thing for them to do. But to bring the country along, to have the faith and credibility of the American people, it has to be bipartisan. You have to go a long way and make sure that people have faith in it. Otherwise, everything in Washington just turns into politics. One side is on one, you know, saying one thing, the other side saying the other thing. And they allowed for that partisanship to go on as opposed to even if if, if the Republicans name someone on the committee and there's a problem with it, let that play out. Let them name them. Let them take part in the process and say, hey, we now have an issue with this. You need to replace them. Try to buy into credibility for the American people. There are a huge number of people in this country that just turned just said this committee is a farce at this so point. And so, speaker, and so I think that does a disservice to the truth that we're all talking about getting to. Because you've now said to a huge swath of the American people, you don't count and we're not going to include your uh, views in this. Under a Speaker McCarthy, would he want political violence investigated. Is that one of the investigations we would see well, I, in the coming months? I, I, I can't speak for what his plans yeah. are moving well, but forward on that, so, so I'm talking about that. But so that was curious. what he advocated in the yeah. negotiations with, at the time, Speaker right. Pelosi before this was, let's expand this out. This isn't the only political violence that's so happened. So once in we power, have members is of it Congress. something that he would come back to? I, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, at this it's point, worth asking, because at if this we're point, talking think, about it expansively, yeah. then it's like, follow through, let's see it. Yeah, I think that some of these things get broken by the way they're approached. And so my point is, for instance, just one, one last point on this. For instance, another thing that was unprecedented that happened in this Congress was normally it is respected that each party is allowed to choose who they put on committees. For the first time, the Democrats said, we're going to remove Republicans off of committees. I think you're going to see a tit for tat of that now, and you're going to see Republicans removing Democrats off of committees. These sort of norms, which at one point, the Democrats were very upset about norms being broken in Washington. They've broken them, too, and it just, it just separates us well, out. Well, I'll tell you one thing on this, though. I mean, I, and thinking about you talk about the idea of compartmentalizing the distinction. And I tell you, as a voter, the idea that we're going to have tit-for-tat retaliation is already making me roll my eyes. I can think of the list of priorities that ought to be there collectively, but I think you're probably right. Let me ask you, Brett. I mean, there, is, there are... There is reporting that just on Friday, they're going to start talking about criminal referrals, which I know is part of Mike's note about politics versus criminal referrals. How do you see this panning out? Because, of course, you've got people who were subpoenaed to testify. They didn't follow through on being actually responsive to it. What do you see as even any potential criminal referrals here? So the ones that interested me reading what the reporting was were issues of perjury and witness tampering, which obviously anyone who comes before Congress is one, you got to tell the truth. And two, you can't be tampering with witnesses. Those are the ones that I'm most interested to see what came out of those transcripts and what is outlined, because those, I believe, would go beyond the political issue. When you're dealing with whether or not they're going to make a criminal referral for former President Trump on conspiracy to defraud. Which is everyone's big question. Uh, yeah, which they can do. The Justice Department's already investigating. They've been bringing in Stephen Miller and all these different people. They don't need Congress for that. But if Congress has evidence that would be relevant for the Justice Department with respect to witness tampering, that's important. That needs to be reported. Just like Republicans made criminal referrals when they were running it uh, during the first part of uh, President Trump's you know, administration, Democrats can make the same referrals. The ones that matter to me are the ones dealing with perjury. And I will say, I mean, today you had the Attorney General Merrick Garland seemingly to be a receptive audience to anyone to be held to account who has an attack on our democracy in the proper form you're talking about. We'll see what happens. Of course, there's a lot more to unpack and 
it won't all get resolved tonight. <laughs> but let's unpack what will be maybe resolved, maybe not, this coming Saturday, because talking about the World Cup fever, and it is spreading. And this country is really coming together around a very notably diverse U.S. men's team. But a question that has been going around and being asked and really contemplated right now is, what we're asking of our black American athletes as they're being questioned about their race and identity and intersectionality, even on a world stage. Plus, how Team USA's victory over Iran is righting a wrong for the women's team. I'll tell you why next. The U.S. men's soccer team had to take on the Netherlands this coming Saturday in the World Cup's knockout round. The team advancing after defeating Iran one to nothing in a very hard-fought victory just yesterday. And while the World Cup is delivering, well, thrilling and nail-biting matches, it's also shining a very big spotlight on issues around social justice and diverse representation in sports. I want to bring in now Clint Smith, staff writer for The Atlantic and former U.S. goalkeeper, World Cup champion, and two-time Olympic gold medalist, Brianna Scurry. She's also the author of My Greatest Save, The Brave Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper. And she's a personal hero of mine. I am from Minnesota. I was in on a team in soccer when you were really just kicking butt and taking names. I'm so glad you're here. Clint, I'm happy you're here, too. Yeah, but I'm talking to the Minnesotans for a second. second. Okay, okay, you can play right. a little bit. I'm happy you're here, too. Look, I watched it, too. Okay, wonderful. So, there you go. Well, then let's just jump in because we're watching, and so many of us have been seeing the excitement. And there are going to be people watching right now who are watching this team in the World Cups, and they are solidifying their list of personal heroes as well. And I'm just wondering, what has been your reaction to what you've seen? The guys have done incredibly well so far. I mean, I was hopeful that they would get out of the group, and that's exactly what they did yesterday in nail-biting fashion, mind you, um, the f- a flair for the dramatic. But um, once again, uh, U.S. soccer came through. A big plan was put forward for them to do well, and fortunately, they've done well. So now it's just... It's just all gravy from now on out for them. I mean, that's amazing to think about where they are. And it's not like they're the little engine that could, but we do think of the women's soccer team on this world stage far more than we think about the men, which is ironic. But we're also having, in many years, and you had wrote a great piece about this, Clint, we seem to have very fixed visions of who plays soccer and at what level. And when you have athletes who don't conform to whatever that image is, There is something really eye-opening. It's an opportunity to have the conversations. Mm. But as you saw to maybe today, you may have seen Tyler Adams, who was asked a question about representing the United States of America and about his race in particular. Listen Mm. to this. There's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, You know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. Obviously, it takes longer to understand, and through education, I think it's it's super important. Like you just educated me now on the pronunciation of of your country. So, um, yeah, it, it's a it's a process. I think as as long as you see progress, uh, that's the most important thing. And to be clear, the question he was asked by an Iranian journalist was whether he felt uneasy about representing a, a country with a history of discrimination. Maybe a little bit of people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Sort of connotation right. happening. What did you make of his, I thought, a very thoughtful response? Yeah, I think 
I was sort of blown away by the fact that, uh, you know, he's 23 years old, first time he's been in this sort of situation. Um, U.S. hasn't played in the World Cup in eight years. Last time the World Cup was in, in uh, last time the U.S. was in the World Cup, Tyler Adams was 15 years old. Um, and so to be asked a question of that sort of geopolitical significance with no, uh, no context, I think he gave a really measured, thoughtful answer. And it also reflects uh, his own experience. You know, Tyler Adams has a very unique background. He was raised by uh, a white mother and a white family. Um, and he spoke to the way that he has been able to move in his experience across different groups and across different cultures. What was interesting for me is that this team has 11 different black players on it. And their experiences reflect the heterogeneity uh, and the diversity of the black experience in America and the sort of growing internationalism of uh, the black American experience more generally. And I think each of them may have given different versions of uh, of that answer based on their own experiences. But Mm -hmm. I think that that answer that Tyler gave was really important and really legitimate and and, and reflected, I think, uh, a level of... uh, Empathy, a level yeah. of calmness, a level of thoughtfulness for beyond his ears. I, I loved it. And Brianna, when you think about it, I mean, you know, for me growing up, I had you to look up to. I mean, also literally, you're much taller than I am. But I th- the idea of thinking about it and what was, and you became a norm for me. I saw you, therefore, we must be playing. We do have these positions, which is such a blessing to see you in that role. But also, I mean, there are now a generation of young women who are seeing, and to your point, Clint, this, these are Title IX men players, they call them now, mm. right? Yes. Because we have been fighting as, you know, more broadly women, but certainly in the athletic arena, the idea of pay equity. Mm-hmm. And you know this quite well. And so we understand that based on where they are right now, women are, women's team is going to get essentially half of their earnings as well, which is a phenomenal accomplishment and one that's not a condescending, like, oh, I'll give you a little bit of scraps. Right. What do you think about that? And what does that signify to you that this is where we are? I, I think it signifies um, so much has changed. Um, in particular, with the Tyler situation, he was chosen by his teammates to be captain. Mm. Normally, a coach will declare who the captain is based on their viewpoint of how they lead and how they feel about that person in the in the grand scheme of the team. But the players chose him, so that's number one. That says a lot about him as a leader and as a person. Um, with regards to um, showing how there's equity now. Um, that was 30 years in the making. I mean, yeah. we've been fighting for a very long time, including the 99ers um, for my teams, and in the, in the mid-90s even um, for this. And now that we finally were able to get there, in part because of the maturity and the understanding of this men's team, because all different entities had to come to the table, the Women's Players Association, the Men's Association, and U.S. Soccer uh, Board of Directors, and Cindy Parlow, who's a former teammate of mine who's now president of the soccer mm. federation all these different groups had to come together and have agreement and the men were gracious enough to say you know what the women deserve it it's time uh, let's do the right thing by them and also now we are all on the same page and all cheering for each other and now it's truly one nation one team and this is the first time it's been that way that's amazing to think about and really to have the literal buy-in of, of what you're discussing and just think if we'd had pay equity when the women were winning as well. I mean, look, we would be in a very different yeah. position, just say it not for nothing, but speaking of pages, your book is really incredible and talking about the personal journey you have had and pay equity comes into that and your own personal experiences. It is an unbelievable read. And we're all going to be rooting on Team USA on Saturday. I have to ask, reading the tea leaves, how do they fare against the Netherlands, you think? I know you're going to say they're going to win, but how are they going to fare? Well, here's the interesting thing about that. 
Um, the round robin play, you have like calculations, you're trying to figure out who should play, who shouldn't play. That all goes out the window now. It's win or go home. It's a whole new ball game. Um, those are cliches, but it's so true. And the men are in uncharted territory, but these guys are, you know, they're proud enough and they're good enough and they just might upset the world by beating the Netherlands on Saturday. So don't be surprised if you see it. I think this World Cup has shown that anybody can beat anybody on any day. We saw Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. We saw Tunisia today beat France. We saw, I mean, I think there are so many examples in this World Cup of teams that, uh, one tradition, who, of groups of teams that traditionally wouldn't be considered uh, contenders or people Mm -hmm. who can measure up against some of the best teams in the world, who've really... Take, I mean, the World Cup is such a singular moment. It's such a singular experience. And the players, you know, as, as she knows, like, this is the moment. This is what you, you dream of when you're a kid. And so I think that, you know, this young team, this team who, again, the last team, time the U.S. played in a World Cup, all of these guys were kids. Um, so I think that they're going to be really revved up for this. And, and anything can happen. Yeah. I mean, imagine to your piece, Clint, and people should read it in The Atlantic, imagine if all they had to do was address themselves as athletes. Yeah. Just that, just the burden of sport in and of itself. Thank you, both of you. Nice speaking with you. And in history is being made in other areas, of course, as you know, even today in the House of Representatives, Democrats picking Hakeem Jeffries as the first black lawmaker to lead a party in Congress. It also marks a big generational shift, frankly. So what does all this say about the future of the Democratic Party more broadly? President Joe Biden tonight tweeting a photo of his dinner with First Lady Dr. Jill Biden and President Emmanuel Macron and his wife, Brigitte, in Washington, saying, welcoming some friends to town. But tomorrow night, it'll be all tuxedos and gowns and China and crystal for the Biden administration's first state dinner. The first state dinner, in fact, since 2019. It'll be an important day. But I want to also focus on what's another important day and a very historic vote in the House today. Democrats electing new Congressman Hakeem Jeffries as leader. You know, he's now the first black person to lead one of the two major parties in either chambers of Congress. And that comes as part of a generational shift in Democratic House leadership. So what does all of this tell us about the future of the Democratic Party and the country more broadly? Audie Cornish is back with me, and we're joined by Alaska's Democratic Congresswoman, Mary Peltola. Lovely to have you here, Congressman. Thank you for being here. It's a really exciting time and a time of transition. And thinking about it, Audie, I mean, the significance. My daughter, who's eight, always jokes around, Mommy, history seems to happen all the time. She's no longer impressed (laughs) by what happens. You know, 14 years now after the first African American president, we've got a black woman as a vice president. Um, When you think about the context of this, speak to the significance. I think the context for me is that when you look at the Congressional Black Caucus, so many lawmakers there are lawmakers like Jim Clyburn, who really came of age and came to power in that sort of post-integration burst in many cities around the country. They didn't end up speaker, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They got close, but not there. And I think the fact that Hakeem Jeffries has been mentored by Clyburn, that Clyburn still has a lot of influence in the party and will remain in leadership, is actually quite significant. Um, But it is a reflection of the ability of that particular kind of power broker and figure in Congress um, 
to help be part of that ushering in and part of that decision making, right? There isn't a Hakeem Jeffries without all of these other lawmakers that you saw in the Congressional Black Caucus working hard all those years. And speaking of what's being ushered in and the lawmakers who are now part of this new generation, a new Congress to be sworn in, what, 34 days from now, Congresswoman? I mean, thinking about where you are and your historic in your own right, your nature of your um, your politics and where you are today, you know, I wonder if you've reflected on the changing significance of how people are represented and how you will endeavor to do so. It is really impressive, I think, like you say, how far we've come in just 14 years or 20 years or 30 years. Um, in some ways, it's amazing it's taken this long, but we've seen just such a growth spurt in a short time. And Hakeem Jeffries, when he gave his acceptance speech within the caucus today, it was so moving. And he talked about the beautiful mosaic of America being represented in our caucus. And it's just true. There, there is such a diversity in our caucus. And um, it's wonderful to see that in the leadership, not just Hakeem Jeffries, but Pete Aguilar mm-hmm. and... Um, Congressman Clark as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kathleen Clark and Ted Lieu. And so that really shows that there is a recognition that no matter where you come from, no matter what your ethnic background, no matter the color of your skin, we all have leadership qualities. We can all be wonderful, good leaders and coalesce people together. It's such an important point. And just thinking about the mosaic and, and, and what it stands for. And then, of course, the reality sits in for the American electorate as well, and that we can look at the tapestry, look at the mosaic. And as the congressman said today, at times, it's going to come down to just getting stuff done, right? Here he is. Mm-hmm. House Democrats fight for the people. That's our story. That's our legacy. That's our values. That's our commitment as we move forward. Get stuff done. Make life better for everyday Americans. I mean, it's the marching order that I think every member of the electorate wants to happen. Can Mm -hmm. it be realized and achieved, Congresswoman? Absolutely. We've got real pressing problems right now domestically, um, in foreign affairs. We have real things that we need to get done. And so it really shouldn't even matter um, fundamentally what what we all, what our ethnicities are. We, we all need to be pulling. We all need to be making sure that we've got our eye on the ball and, and we're moving forward. It's so important. And speaking of forward, I mean, while you have the leadership in the Democratic side um, now sort of solidified, the Republican side, who's in the majority, Adi, as you well know, Kevin McCarthy is not necessarily a shoe-in, which might surprise some people. And it's his second bite at the apple. And the last time he did not fare well. When you look at that and trying to reconcile the priorities and the need to have bipartisanship, knowing some have written that McCarthy will have a caucus of mansions. And we all know what that might mean in the long run in terms of having to convince every single part of his party and still not be able to achieve it. How do you see this going? Um, I don't want to be the spoiler because you sound so idealistic and I love your energy. I think that's great. Uh-oh. Uh, Democrats will be in the minority. It is going to be tough. It's probably good for Hakeem Jeffries, et cetera, to be starting uh, 
in the minority, right? Because that's where you have to really figure out the vote counting and keeping people together and all those things that um, Speaker Pelosi, former Speaker, uh, very much did all of those years and did actually get things done. There are so many pieces of legislation that have her stamp on it. Um, Meanwhile, with McCarthy, you know, Behind him, there's kind of a political um, graveyard of speakers past of Republicans, right? Whether it's Hastert or Paul Ryan or John Boehner, um, there's a lot of people who really faltered. And he is already experiencing the difficulty that they did with the current breed of House politician, which, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say is a little bit different in that there are many more people who have who have power without the party meaning they have a kind of media stardom. Maybe they're a great fundraiser. They have the cameras. They don't necessarily need the party. And they're not shy about saying that. And that's going to make his job difficult. And I I think the fact that they haven't laid out very specific legislative priorities is something to consider. And it'll be interesting to see how Democrats hold their coalition together when there's such a tiny minority, right? Because they can actually do a little damage, right? They can affect things, even though they're not in power, because that majority that the Republicans have is just so slim. Well, Congresswoman, we will be watching for the opportunity to see how this all plays out. And I got to tell you, if... If you're the spoiler, I want the glass half full in Congress. There we go. We'll play it that way. It'll be important. Congresswoman, my best of luck to you. Thank you so much. From a deadly pandemic to mass shootings to nationwide protests, it's been a very traumatic few years, to say the least. And for many, well, trauma can go back not just months or days and weeks, but decades or even generations. So what can we all do to move to a healthier place? We'll discuss that next. So we live in a society that's dealing with collective trauma. Fair to say? Well, all of us have been impacted by serious, life-changing events over just the last few years, including the COVID-19 pandemic, extreme violence, like the murder of George Floyd and the horrific stream of mass shootings, including at schools. Trauma is the subject of Audie Cornish's podcast this week, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Here's a part of it. Now, for sure, given the last couple of years, all of us are probably a little bit dramatized. The riots over police-involved killings, killings that run on a loop on your smartphone. The only thing that I can tell is... The national debates about race and a pandemic that revealed inequality in our health, education and economy like a low tide. But there is a difference between the shock of these events and the long term effects of trauma on whole communities. So what does that mean? What do people who know about trauma think about the way it's being kicked around in pop culture? Audie is back with me. We're also joined by CNN political commentator Ashley Allison and Mike Shields is back as well. I mean, Audie, it's really fascinating to think about this because on the one hand, you know, the idea of talking about trauma still feels very fresh in the overall sort of modern history of America. We seem to still be a put under the rug sort of maybe collective generation of people. On the other hand, what we see, the phrase of all in together, at least for the pandemic, for example, 
certainly we can pinpoint and point to broader issues of trauma, but the idea that it's more of a shared experience might surprise people in very different ways. In fact, you had a guest, Dr. Tama Bryant, who talked about everyone having experienced some sort of trauma. That's a difficult tie to bind. I think she, just to give us some context here, there is an expanding area of research called epigenetics, which says that there can be various sort of gene suppression or expression um, in the descendants of people who have experienced collective trauma. So they have studied Holocaust victims' descendants, also uh, pregnant women uh, post 9-11, and they've actually kind of looked at these communities at their stress levels, et cetera. So that is an expanding area of newer research in the area of genetics. That's the backdrop to this conversation about psychology. And what's interesting is that psychology has not really embraced this idea that there could be what's called ancestral trauma, right? That a trauma could somehow collectively affect a marginalized community, Black, Native American, Japanese internment victims, et cetera. But after 2020 this became more of a topic and of more interest. And now their president-elect, this woman, Dr. Tama Bryant, she's a specialist in this. She's at Pepperdine University, and she runs a lab called the Culture and Research Lab. And they basically figure out how can we better treat people in general, but also how can we acknowledge the whole person in our treatment. And it's not um, a slam dunk, right? There are some people who say, this is bringing politics into the room, right? This is creating maybe a difficult dynamic between um, a predominantly like white profession and maybe the people of color who might come in for support. How well, do word, we reckon with this? The word acknowledgement, I think, was a really important one too. You use because I, when I think when you were talking, I was thinking about the politics of people acknowledging the idea of intergenerational trauma broadly, and the idea of I bet there are many people who sort of poo-poo the idea. We think about how the so-called woke culture has been received. The idea of addressing um, emotional well-being and mental health in different ways not always something that's taken. Um, to heart or acknowledge in different political worlds. And I wonder, what's your take on it? The idea of thinking of how um, there is this cross-section. We were speaking earlier about compartmentalizing what ought to be political and what ought to be personal or criminal. Does this strike you as an out-of-sorts notion? Look, I think uh, we need to find more and more avenues for people to feel comfortable talking about mental health. And so if their experience, whatever it is, whether it's even from political trauma, is how it gets them to talk about it, then I'm for it, Mm. regardless. Because everyone's experience is different. That's the whole point of talking about mental health. We all have a different experience that we've lived through. And we all need to be open and honest with that with each other as a society and make it okay for people to say, I'm experiencing trauma from whatever it is their experience that caused it is. The more that we can do that, I feel like there are so many political issues mm-hmm. that we turn into partisan fights when they're actually at the root cause. We could all agree this is a mental health problem that's causing you pick it. I don't want to I don't want to add to the, yeah. to the fight. But there is mental health is at the root of so many problems in our country. And we sort of touch on it and then we move on because we'd rather talk about something else. Mm-hmm. And so every way that you can find to get someone into that conversation, I think is a good idea. Well, we crave escapism, actually, in many respects, right? And we crave to not talk I about I wouldn't the think difficult. of it as escapism. It's about coping. And mm. what are your coping mechanisms? Yeah. There are toxic ways to cope with the issues in your life. And that's why you go to mental health professionals, right? To say, is there a better way for me to cope with the stresses of my life because maybe my parents taught me it's easier to have a glass of wine at the end of the night or whatever it is rather than 
sitting down and figuring it out or talking it out or whatever. And I'm actually really glad you said that about heritage and background, because one of the things Dr. O'Brien talked about is the idea that this is actually not just about marginalized communities, right? Like there are certainly going to be, if you can sit down with a patient and say, have you ever had substance abuse? And you do that in the intake. And then you can say, have you ever faced discrimination? And you put that in the intake. And no matter who they are, if they feel like they have experienced discrimination or experienced something, that's an experience that a clinician has to take in as they discuss it. How do you see it, Ashley? I am so excited about this study. It's something that I have really tried to integrate into my work as an organizer um, because you, you often see people who experience pain have a lot of the solutions to the problems, but often aren't engaged. Mm. And that disregard for their lived experience creates more trauma. It creates more sense of, I don't matter. And we come from a society, you know, the generation before, maybe even my generation, something happens to you and you were told like, dust your shoulders off, be tough, Mm. suck it up. When really, hurt you you might have been hurt and we know hurt people hurt people and if we don't deal with the issues you don't have the capacity to really become your full and best self and that can be from generational trauma or it can be from immediate trauma that you have from something that you know a microaggression to a blatant experience of racism um from your day-to-day life so i think it's a conversation we need to have more in politics and across our country. I mean, certainly things that affect the people of the United States and the government of foreign by the people yeah. ought mm-hmm. to be And it's also happening in pop culture, well. right? We oh, don't yeah. talk about Bruno, everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. You know, to me, I was sort of seeing it in pop culture that like, hey, there's this idea that you need to reckon with your past and what does that actually really mean when it comes down to treatment? Every parent in the world is now upset with Adi for getting the song, <laughs> We Don't Talk About Bruno. Sorry. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, you're welcome. I appreciate You're that. Welcome. Lin-Manuel Miranda is thrilled. <laughs> I, of course, will take that earworm for the rest of my life. <laughs> but speaking of music that really sticks with you and has made so many moments and memories for so many people, the world of music did lose a star tonight. Christine McVie, one of the creative forces behind Fleetwood Mac, died today at the age of 79. Her legacy and her hits next. Don't Stop is one of the biggest hits for Fleetwood Mac and one of the most influential bands of all time. Well, Christine McVie wrote that song, and sadly, she died today at the age of 79. She was a prolific singer and songwriter, a key player in some of Fleetwood Mac's biggest hits, including Songbird, You Make Love and Fun, and Little Lies. Stevie Nicks on Instagram honoring Christine McVie with a handwritten message calling her her best friend in the whole world, and saying she didn't even know she was ill. Back with me now, Audie, Ashley, and Mike. I mean, I have to tell you, there is such a iconic nature of hearing songs like that, thinking about bands like Fleetwood Mac, 
but you know, in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but hear that song and think about how often it is used in politics. I mean, for many, Clinton it was the soundtrack of the, yeah, it was the soundtrack of the Clinton campaign. Yeah. And just thinking about how we often are looking to music to capture a moment, to be able, I mean, the lyrics itself, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Don't stop. It'll soon be here. It'll be better than before. Yesterday's gone. Yesterday's gone. And you think about what image that really creates and conjures in a place like Washington, D.C., when political slogans are trying to capture that moment. Did that resonate for you, too? Oh, sure. And look, you know, the, the amazing thing about Fleetwood Mac is, that first of all, one of the top-selling albums of all time, Rumors, uh, more than 40 million copies sold. And certainly, you know, Bill Clinton, the boomer president, baby yeah. boomer band from the 70s. But they sort of transcended generations. Yeah. You know, there was a f- TikTok that had a Fleetwood Mac song in it and sort of reinvigorated oh, Stranger Fr- Things. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so, and so you now have kids. My, my friends have, you know, school-aged kids that all know who Fleetwood Mac is. It kind of blows my mind because I grew up with them. I mean, one wow. of the biggest bands, historic Hall of Fame bands for rock and roll. And yet they've managed to transcend with their music. And so she had a massive impact. I mean, it's true, thinking about just how music not only is really the soul of a nation, but how you have almost a remember-where-you-were moment when you heard this and seeing it intergenerationally. It's a way that some are trying to connect with others on this, and it's a a memory for her as well. What do you think? Yeah, Fleetwood Mac was a little bit before my time. How dare you? That's okay. Inappropriate. (laughs) Inappropriate. I I just (laughs) ate the bags. And yet, today, you know, I was listening on Spotify, Mm -hmm. listening to all of their songs, and really reminiscing, you know, Landslides is like one of my karaoke yeah. songs that I sing poorly, but I try, you know. Um, and it, it is a beautiful legacy to see such great music transcend generations and will live long beyond this conversation. And yeah. I, what, a, what a deserving legacy and tribute. Yeah, I mean, their music was deeply personal. And I think that's something that's always resonated. It's also a group that's always been known for its personal infighting and volatility. She was the kind of more calm center and represented a kind of stillness in uh, a little bit of a chaotic kind of interpersonal scenario. Um, and I while Clinton is interesting, you know, that song came out in 77. And I think when you think back to that period politically, um, the idea that you would do something so optimistic and mm, present it to the world, you know, I think is significant. And finally, as a female songwriter, it's just so lovely to hear people speak about her with such reverence, because that is a group of songwriters, right? Yeah. Everyone is fantastic there. But she really has earned her place. And I think that part of her legacy of just writing so powerfully, so simply, um, and with such grace, that's what's going to stand the test of time. So well said. We'll be right back. Well, cities across the country are grappling with the reality, or in some cases, the perception of a significant rise in crime. And they're looking for solutions. Take San Francisco, for example, where the city's board of supervisors voted to approve a controversial policy that would allow police to deploy robots that kill. It's a jarring headline, I admit, but San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott tells CNN these robots would only be used in the most extreme circumstances. 
He also says that only officers with the rank of deputy or assistant chief or chief of police will be able to authorize the use of these lethal robots. I want to bring in now editor-in-chief of The Hill, Bob Cusack, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison, and CNN law enforcement analyst and former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone. I mean, look, when you think about this headline, the idea of robots being able to be used that can use lethal force, it's on the backdrop, not in a vacuum, on our discussions over the years about the Fourth Amendment, unreasonable search and seizure, excessive police force. It also conjures up for many people what happened in, in 2016. Remember in Dallas when a, a, a robotic device was used to deploy against somebody who had lethally, fatally shot five officers. Now, this is a different context, Michael, but I'm wondering from your perspective, when you think about this, through the delegation, perhaps, to a robot? Are we being too sort of reductive about this? What do you make of it? I mean, I think that uh, as a law enforcement officer, I want to have tools in my toolbox that are available to me to address uh, any possible scenario. And as we know from 2016, um, there was a scenario in which that was uh, the safest way to neutralize a threat Uh, that was posed against law enforcement. Um, Again, you know, only to be used in the most extreme circumstances. Uh, Obviously, the, uh, you know, having a chief or assistant chief being the only individuals within the chain of command that can approve that tactic. Does that rank make you feel more secure in terms of the the judgment to be used and when to do it? Uh, It does. I mean, it, you know, obviously it's going to have to make its way through, um, quite a few individuals and ultimately to the top uh, before someone can approve that drastic a measure. That being said, I think it's important for officers to have uh, any tool uh, at their disposal um, as long as it's appropriately used. I do wonder about, I'm thinking about the length of time it takes in the most extreme circumstances. How, how do you know to use it and will it be done in time before the human element comes in? And I got to tell you, Part of me actually thinks to myself, well, when you have a human being, there's a chance that judgment or discretion can be more trusted maybe than the automatic nature of a robot that maybe can't be shut off in some respect. Do you have some misgivings about this? I have to say, when I saw the story, it did not make me feel comfortable. Um, I, I understand the need for law enforcement to have what they need to do their jobs and protect themselves. I also know that when we use robots on some things, algorithms, processes, things, they are imperfect. Um, And when we talk about taking another person's life, that draws it into question. We don't always get it right as human beings, and we, the robots, won't either. I guess the question is when and why you use it. Um, And I don't want it to become a slippery slope. I don't want it to become you know, the self-driving car or the mm. person that stops the uh, uh, someone for a traffic stop. Maybe in the most extreme circumstances, but I do have some hesitation and pause on how this will be used um, yeah. in, in society. Let's hear from the San Francisco police chief, Bill Scott, on this point. I want you to respond as well, because there are those concerns that I think he was anticipating and tried to address, at least in part. Our technicians and our, our, our special weapons and tactics officers who use these types of devices are highly trained, highly skilled, and they know what they're doing. 
what we have asked for is the ability to use robots in the event that we have that worst case scenario where lives have been taken or in the process of being lost and it is unsafe to send an officer to that door, to that structure, or to that location where this is happening. I mean, the idea of knowing what you're doing is, is I, I guess we're talking about being trained, but there is an instance, if you think about this in San Francisco, compare that to what's happening in a place like New York, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's conversations now about mental health and the idea of being able to either detain or um, involuntarily confine in some way um, and commit using all the same notion of discretion, right? The idea of being able to think, here's what's going to happen. Here's just the right decision to make. I wonder, and just your reporting and thinking about it, what does it say in the climate we're in? I mean, is this idea of this level of discretion and then the delegation to a measure like this or thinking about mental health and having that be a part of the assessment, does that, you think, sit well? Well, number one, I think this country's got to come to grips. It's got a mental health problem. Mm. It's a crisis, and it's only gotten worse since COVID. And I think when you, when you can save uh, a police officer's life, that's a great thing. It, but it should be one of the last resorts. And I, and I honestly think you've got to have oversight here. You know, uh, your point on slippery slope, I think, is a very good one. What's the next uh, step? Uh, I think you mean congressional court, oversight of some kind? Or? Uh, some type of oversight to see, okay, reviewing whether it's a local or potentially civil, congressional. Civil, yeah, yeah, you need to say, okay, did it work in this situation? Uh, we just can't trust the police completely. But at the same time, I understand his point that if you're going to send a human being in there and that's an officer who's going to lose life, why not send a robot uh, if it's a dangerous situation? But I do think that Congress and others, you ha- what the mental health issue I think more legislation has to be passed. I think more resources have to be uh, delivered to states and, and localities. And I think new programs have to be set up. And insurance, uh, uh, insurance companies don't really recognize mental health uh, as, as much as other types of health problems. That's a problem. I mean, if you know the idea of mental health just to transition and, and put a finer point on this, in New York, you know they've got this new, um, or they've implemented, as according to Mayor Adams, the idea of being able to have officers who, frankly, you know, are already overwhelmed in a variety of ways, insisting on being the jack of all trades. Do you have concerns about requiring officers to be in a position to assess mental health in a broader way and be able to determine an episode, what to do about it, and to make decisions that, are, that might be different from the training you receive in terms of a violent threat? Yeah, I mean, listen, any time that you introduce an armed law enforcement officer into a, um, an encounter with a civilian, there's always going to be the possibility of an escalation of force that could ultimately result in the loss of life. That being said, I think that Mayor Adams sees a problem and he's approaching that problem as a law enforcement officer would. Um, it is, mental health is an issue. Um, it is an epidemic in this country. And homelessness is an epidemic in this country. And there are you know, issues that I saw as a police officer in Washington, D.C. for two decades um, involving a combination of the two factors that I could not dr- address as a police officer. And I think that what Mayor Adams is saying is, like, we have this problem. Um, we need to do something. We can't just do nothing. And so he's using... Uh, a force that he has at his disposal as the mayor of New York City and hoping that their, you know, intervention in these individuals' lives will result in uh, a better situation than what they're experiencing right now. 
the honesty is important. The idea of not being able to, there's no panacea to all the issues we're describing and we're fooling ourselves if we can. But just note, read more about what's happening in San Francisco as, of course, what's happening in New York in different contexts as well. Listen, everyone, the pictures out there are stunning. And I'm talking about the world's largest active volcano. Look at it right there. Shooting lava for miles on Hawaii's Big Island and everyone wants to see it. But how close can you get and stay safe? For me, it's right here. But I'll ask a volcanologist next. Well, now to the world's largest active volcano, shooting fountains of lava more than 100 feet up into the air. The Mauna Loa volcano erupted this week for the first time since 1984. And now it's edging closer to a major highway in Hawaii. Now, luckily, officials say it's currently not a threat to neighboring communities. I want to bring in Jess Phoenix. She's a volcanologist and author of Misadventure, My Wild Explorations in Science, Lava, and Life. Jess, I mean, just looking at this from people, you know, it almost seems like a Hollywood movie. They see this shooting up. It almost doesn't even look real. And I can't help but be a little fearful of what we're seeing. Tell me, is there a, a real risk? Is this rapidly moving lava that's shooting and going down? Well, when you have the moments where the lava is being ejected into the air, forming what we call lava fountains, like in the video, uh, that can be hazardous. You don't want to get too close to that. Uh, However, this eruption is actually, at the moment, one of the best-case scenarios for a volcanic eruption because Mm. the lava that Mauna Loa produces is really oozy. It's a very runny lava. So it's not the type of lava that you see with Mount St. Helens. Um, or Vesuvius, where you have a really sticky lava that creates a big explosion. Mauna Loa is oozing and running and flowing, and that means that scientists can get up close and personal to really understand what's going on with the volcano. That's what's so exciting, I'm sure, especially for a volcanologist like yourself to think about. Look, I mean, you don't want it to obviously impact the communities or cause any harm, but there's something very magnificent, I'm sure, about the study of seeing it active after what nearly 40 decades 40 40 years excuse me and so what kinds of things could you learn about this and seeing the eruption i mean how distinct is it from say its dormant period to have a better understanding of of what makes the volcanoes tick and a way to prevent or predict Yeah, right now, uh, volcanology is a science that is rapidly making improvements. Ever since Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, it sort of revolutionized the study of volcanoes. And it really drove home the need that we have to understand them better in order to protect people and people's property from damage. So right now, when we watch this eruption, scientists are out there 24-7 taking measurements of the rate of the flow, of the composition of the lava, what crystals, what what elements are present. Um, They're measuring the gases that are being emitted. They're measuring how much the ground flexes from the infusion of magma underneath out onto the eruption at the surface. So there's tons of data that we're collecting right now. And scientists at the United States Geological Survey and their colleagues around the world are going to be analyzing that to tell us, is there precursor signs that we can look for in eruptions like this? Are there lessons we can learn for future eruptions that are going to save lives? 
And of course, you've got these dueling essentially volcanoes happening right now, Kilauea and also Mauna Loa. But I understand that it is still safe. The governor of Hawaii is saying it is safe to visit. But of course, there is the distinction between members of the scientific community who are studying this and those who are trying to get a peek at what's happening. Is there a study of the impact of the air quality, too? I mean, the lava is one thing, but we're seeing smoke and obviously volcanic ash in the air. Well, actually, I have to I have to correct something right there. It's not actually Ooh. smoke. It is. It's volcanic gases, which are acid gases. You don't want to breathe them in. So we're talking hydrogen fluoride, hydrogen sulfide, sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide. These are all gases that are really not fun for uh, average folks to breathe in, let alone if you have any sort of respiratory issue. So the Hawaiian Civil Defense Authority and the U.S. Geological Survey will closely monitor the VOG, the volcanic smog, that the eruption produces, and they will let any communities affected know well in advance if, if people with respiratory issues should stay inside. But we're pretty lucky because right now the VOG disperses fairly well, and uh, the civilians in the area have a pretty good handle on dealing with VOG because the neighboring volcano Kilauea has been erupting since the 80s. So wow. people are used to it in Hawaii, which is a good thing. Well, L.A. has smog. I got to tell you, I'll stay away from the VOG and what you're talking about right now and just the, and the idea of where, what things are happening. But it is such a it's a sight to see just the really the power of our earth and all that it contains. Thank you so much for your insight and helping to illuminate these issues. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And just keep your eye on that eruption because it is spectacular. I mean, from this distance, for me, it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You I'll be leave right it here. to the volcanologist. <laughs> I, Jess, I will leave it to you, and you're the perfect person to tell us about it, and we'll learn a great deal. Thank you. Thank you. Well, look, from volcano to the eruption of crowds cheering for what will be the next big World Cup game, it's happening on Saturday at 10 a.m. And really, the burning question, see what I did there, is what are their chances of winning? We'll discuss next. Well, American soccer fans are on the edge of their seats. They're waiting for Saturday when the U.S. men's national team goes up against the Netherlands in the World Cup knockout stage. And it's still unclear if star forward Christian Pulisic will be able to play. He did score the only goal in yesterday's game against Iran, but left filled with what's called a pelvic contusion. Joining me now, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan, who I'm so glad is here to help us think about this. Because, look, everyone's looking forward to Saturday. It was such an exciting matchup. You know, a lot of focus, of course, on the politics of the matchup between the U.S. and Iran. But looking ahead to Saturday, I mean, Netherlands is no joke, right? They are the favorite here. They are definitely. They are a powerhouse, ranked eighth in the world. This is an excellent team. When we think of soccer, men's soccer, you know, you think of the European, you know, dominance or Brazil. I mean, the Netherlands is right there for sure. And this will not be easy. Not that the other ones have been easy. Sure, but, of course. But it just, it gets harder, exponentially harder. It's the round of 16. It's the knockout phase, too. So there's no wiggle room. You, you know, you win, you move on, you lose, you go home. And they do go to extra time. And they do go to penalties if they have to, because they have, there has to be a result. So no more draws here. No, no, no more zero zeros, which I'm sure everyone in America is going, yay, no more zero zeros. I mean, we just ha- 
had Brianna Scurriosk early on talking. I mean, she was known for the shootout that, right. that got the women's team to win. I mean, just thinking about that. But now we'll have that sort of exciting aspect of it. But, you know, they're kind of, they're, not to be dismissive of the team. They're extraordinary, the U.S. men's national team. But they were kind of the little engine that could to people. They weren't really they weren't thought of as being able to be in this position quite yet. I mean, talk about the extraordinary nature of them now. It's the second youngest team at the World Cup. Um, This is, you know, Pulisic. We're talking about him, Mm -hmm. obviously so important. And hopefully he can play. We'll see. He's 24. Wow. You know, there's guys younger than him on that team. This, it, and I think, you know, we always love the new, new thing, right? Whether it's a new gadget, a new toy, a new book, a new, a, a new star, you know, an, a, an actress or an actor. This team is that. It's a, it's a young team. It's a, they're fresh faces. The way they've answered questions, the issues. I mean, they've made us, I, I think they've made us so proud yeah. as a nation. And so it's easy to cheer for them. And they're also, of course, as we've talked about before, they're the guys that gave up some of their money yes. so that the women could have equal pay. Name another group of people that would just willingly give money away so that the greater good could be served. And that's what these young men have done. You do not see that level of altruism and on a world stage like this. And you're right about the issues. I mean, there has been a lot of conversation. There's this moment and you saw where the athletes from the U.S. were even consoling the Iranian players and thinking about what was at stake. Because for a lot of these players from Iran... You know, a lot of these teams combined, you know, they're go- I mean, this, look at this, the, this is the vision yeah. of sportsmanship. And we are looking at these photos, Christine, and you know, it's more than just about the loss of the match. What is on the shoulders of these Iranian players as well, I think was recognized by these American oh, players. Absolutely. These are smart, young athletes and, and young human beings, and they care. And so to see them hugging, and it wasn't just, oh, sorry, you lost. Right. It's because the Americans know that the Iranians are going to go home, at least some of them, some go back to their clubs, uh, but they will go home and their families are also a concern. And they may face punishment and consequences because they didn't sing their anthem mm. the first time. And in fact, I, I know I saw at least one player who did not sing it the, uh, the third match against the U.S. And they've been warned. They've been threatened by their government. Of their course, family they, is threatened as well. Without a doubt. So even if they're not there, it's their, it's their families. And so the American uh, players uh, realize that. They've been empathetic, Laura. They've been kind. They realize that, yes, they won. But what these, these Iranian players are going to go home to or their families are, are going to deal with is something far beyond winning and losing on a soccer field. I mean, that to me is the power of sports and that imagery We can teach our children about this. We can teach ourselves more about this. And maybe we can get a little bit of that empathy and understanding maybe right here on Capitol Hill. Who knows? You know what? That's that's a good idea. Go for it. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. And good luck, of course, to the players this coming Saturday. We'll all be watching. And, you know, from the World Cup to the NBA, well, guess who was at the Celtics game tonight in Boston? There they are, everyone. The Prince and Princess of Wales better known to us commoners as Prince William and Kate Middleton. The royal couple are in Boston for their Earthshot Prize Award ceremony, an initiative founded by the prince to tackle some of the planet's environmental challenges. President Joe Biden will greet the prince and princess on Friday while he's in Beantown for a fundraiser. And coming up, a group of students are suing Yale, alleging discrimination against students with mental health disabilities. My next guest is a former Yale student who is part of that lawsuit. What he's saying next.
A group of students now suing Yale University and its governing body, alleging that Yale discriminated against students with mental health disabilities, even allegedly forcing those with severe mental health disability symptoms to withdraw from the school. CNN's Miguel Marquez has the story. The claim in a new lawsuit seeking class action status, Yale University discriminated against students with mental health disabilities alleging that Yale's withdrawal policies and practices push students with mental health disabilities out of Yale, and if they try to get back in, they face unreasonable burdens. The lawsuit coming shortly after a Washington Post investigation relying on interviews of more than 25 current and former Yale students. One student telling the Post she suffered a sexual assault, eventually attempting suicide, then feeling forced to withdraw from the university. Another account in the Washington Post, a 20-year-old math major who had already withdrawn once, posted on Facebook, Dear Yale, I loved being here. I only wish I could have had some time. I needed time to work things out and to wait for new medication to kick in. But I couldn't do it in school, and I couldn't bear the thought of having to leave for a full year, or of leaving and never being readmitted. Her fear so great of not being allowed in a second time, she died by suicide in 2015. Yale says it made some changes to its policies, but those bringing the lawsuit say it's not enough. In a statement, Yale said, our primary focus is on student safety and health, especially when they are most vulnerable. We have taken steps in recent years to simplify the return to Yale for students on medical withdrawals and to provide additional support for students. The university is confident that our policies comply with all applicable laws and regulations. Nonetheless, we have been working on policy changes that are responsive to students' emotional and financial well-being. Miriam Hyman, who wrote a 2018 white paper on mental health in the Ivy League for the Rutterman Family Foundation, which is cited in the lawsuit, says Yale is not alone when it comes to failing to accommodate students with mental health disabilities. Prior to COVID, experts have sort of labeled what's happening on college campuses as a, as a mental health crisis. National data has shown that as many as, as 40% of undergraduates within a given year um, have felt so d- depressed within that year that it was difficult for them to function. Um, and colleges in general across the country are lack the basic infrastructure, infrastructure to support students' mental health. The problem widespread, a Washington Post analysis of data from the Healthy Minds Network indicated nationwide student rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts more than doubled between 2013 and 2021. And a 2021 report from Penn State's Center for Collegiate Mental Health found that funding isn't keeping pace with demand for mental health services, that the yearly average caseload for a college counselor is about 90 students, with some centers reporting an average of above 300 students per counselor. This issue has now caught the attention of Congress as well. Senator Edward Markey has sent a letter to the Department of Education and Department of Justice asking them to issue guidance and policy reforms to protect access to higher education for students and to strengthen non-discrimination protections for students who may need medical leave. This was a massive issue before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, That only made it worse. Laura? Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. Now I want to bring in Monica Porter, an attorney for the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, and Rishi Merchandani, a Yale alumnus and a plaintiff in this lawsuit. 
you know, when we hear about what's going on, Rishi, Monica, I mean, just hearing in the in the discussion from Miguel how heart-wrenching it is to think about the choices that students have had to make. And Rishi, you withdrew in 2018 um, and after a mental health crisis, you did describe some trouble in being allowed to return. You eventually did graduate, but talk to me about what your personal experience was like in grappling with the policies that you say Yale had. Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for asking. And it's really amazing to be able to share this experience that's been so difficult for me and so many others over decades. Um, When I was dealing with my mental health crisis, I felt like Yale was presenting me with a stark binary choice. I could either continue with a full-time schedule at Yale and all the challenges that would come with, or I would have to commit to an extended absence um, in which I would have to give up university health insurance, on-campus housing, and every manner of institutional support that I had. That choice made things so difficult. And what I didn't understand at the time is I had the federally protected right to have more options on the table. Mm -hmm. Um, Reasonable accommodations are critical to the way that mental health practices are, are properly achieved on campus. Looking at this now, Rishi, do you have any idea of, as to why you thought, maybe at the time compared to now, that you believe Yale was making these challenging or having these hurdles in place? There are a number of different reasons. I think that Yale tends to wash its hands off cases of mental illness that are too severe because they don't want to be associated with that student right? They want the student to deal with their issues anywhere except Yale's campus. Um, And in some instances, taking time off is is a healthy decision. In other cases, it separates students from their primary support group. And so it really has to be a more case-by-case evaluation of what's best for the student rather than a one-size-fits-all approach of if you're really struggling, you need to get out. I mean, Monica, just thinking about the choices, and for a lot of people, they might not realize that there is some right to having a a menu of options in terms of how to have that support system, how it's structured, and what you are entitled to or not on, say, a college campus and a private institution is that. You, you, in the lawsuit, focus on um, Yale's, quote, withdrawal policies, you say, and practices that push students with mental health disabilities out of Yale. Talk to me about what students are up against. And again, this is an issue obviously focused in this lawsuit on Yale, but we cannot think of this in a vacuum. The issues that are being presented are likely far more universal, which is very scary at a lot of campuses. That's absolutely right. As was said earlier, this is part of a national issue. Uh, One in five American adults experience mental health disabilities and suicide is a leading cause of death among college students. At the Bazelon Center, we receive calls from students and parents all over the country. We've been doing research and collecting data on campus mental health issues nationwide and using that to inform the policy change that we advocate for on a national level. We have found Yale to be a particularly egregious example. Um, There are a lot of tricky facets to this issue, but as Rishi said, it can't be a blanket policy. It needs to be addressing each student case individually and exploring all 
reasonable accommodations as per federal law before resulting to something like exclusion. So is the goal of the lawsuit, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of litigation takes place behind closed doors. People are often incentivized to be a little bit quiet and hushed about things. You hear non-disclosures and the like come into play. Is the goal of this litigation to be able to have and effectuate and implement more of a widespread approach that other universities could use as a blueprint? Certainly. This case is seeking to uh, have status as a class action so that we can represent Mm -hmm. all Yale students with mental health disabilities who have been harmed or who do fear the potential to be harmed by these policies in the future. And what we're seeking here and why it is so brave of Rishi and other students, current and former, to be participating in this lawsuit is that no one is seeking any sort of monetary gain. Mm. Purely this lawsuit is seeking systemic policy change to make improvements for all Yale students moving forward. Certainly our hope is that we can engage with experts and create Yale to uh, help Yale to become uh, what can be an example for schools nationwide. Rishi, your bravery requires the last word. What is your message to students who are looking at you right now and hopeful? Yeah, well, I want students to know that we care about them and we're taking these actions in the court of law out of sincere loyalty and love for the Yale community. Um, and we want students to know that there, there is a possibility of light at the end of the tunnel of graduating and, and being able to support others. Rishi Merchandani and Monica, thank you so much. Monica Porter, I appreciate your time. Thank you. When we come back, a new study that could change your work life. Turns out a four-day work week is not only good for workers, turns out it might be good for businesses too. So is it in your future? So maybe you want to work less and get paid the same amount. Well, do I have some good news for you? A study of companies that tried out a four-day work week found that workers were more productive and even happier. And it seemed to have worked for their bosses, too. None. And by the way, that's 0% of the employers wanted to go back to a five-day work week. Shocker. And they made more money. Back with me, Bob Cusick. Ashley Allison and Michael Fanone. Well, first of all, the data. I mean, I feel like Captain Obvious when I say this, but um, apparently 97 percent of the 495 employees who responded said they don't want to go back to a five day work week. First of all, who is this three percent? Like, right. you want to know who it is. I'm guessing it's not at the table with us right now. I'm like, really? Right. Really? You're the people who put fish in the microwave during the day. Bosses. Um, they're, they're, maybe it's the, the bosses. Boss, maybe it's the bosses. Yeah. See? Well, you're mm-hmm. a boss. You are the um, editor-in-chief of The Hill. Is this practical in, say, a newsroom to have a four-day-a-week work week? I'm asking for a friend. Uh, you know, for news, I don't think so. But this de- data is kind of very interesting. I mean, study after st- I mean, this has a lot of momentum. Is it going to happen tomorrow? Mm. No. Um, but if the employers are getting on board, that's a significant thing. I think it, it would vary from industry to industry. Um, you know, Congress works three days a week. They don't get Do much they? done. <laughs> Maybe two Ash, and a half. Ash is like, really? Three whole days? It doesn't, it doesn't work for Congress. <laughs> But, well, I, I do wonder, would this even be possible? 
it's kind of a paradigm shift. And maybe the pandemic and the idea of working from home and the more um, relaxed approach people have had to the idea of, look, people have work-life balance and you're home most a lot of the time. Could that have happened, this survey and these results maybe before then, as acceptable to the employers? Well, you know, like the federal government used to do a flex work mm-hmm. schedule where some people would every other week get to work four days a week. Um, I think the pandemic, though, is tell- it was a wake-up call for folks to say, like, we don't have to go back to everything that was before. Um, mm-hmm. And we should reevaluate that. A lot of employers did Wellness Fridays to make sure people could take time just for themselves to feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very stressful time. I'm fully supportive of four-day work week because mm-hmm. the reality is it's not that you're making more money doing less work. It's that you become actually more productive in those four days and you can still make the same amount of money. So as long as your work product stays the same and that you are as efficient and get things done, I think it's fine. I mean, hey, let's do three days. I mean, let's well, be like Congress. I, I, look, why stop at three? I mean, two is fine. <laughs> right. I don't know. In fact, let's have it just be half a day. I mean, turns to me, but I, I'm joking. But again, I, I think about that. I mean, I remember when I became a mom, I had to be very honed in on the amount of t- finite time I was going to have or was going to allow to be taken. You know, you have these idea of the different balls you're juggling and you realize in your life some are actually rubber and you can let them drop and others are glass. And if you those drop, that's it. The four-day work week might work best with that, but I wasn't a law enforcement officer. I wasn't a police officer. Does this work, do you think, in that realm? Or, and I, I wonder, frankly, is it better to have that reprieve in the work you did? So when I was a Metropolitan Police Officer, we dabbled in the four-day work week uh, within the patrol units. Uh, it's just not feasible in a lot of the specialized units. I worked in narcotics. Uh, I mean, I was lucky to get a five-day work day work week, if not a six or a seven-day work week. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the case was hot, you worked the case, and you know your schedule was kind of dictated o- around what it was you were working on at that time. That being said, for the uniform patrol officers who work some of the most high-stress um, or in the most high-stress environment within policing it made a huge difference uh, for them to be able to have a three-day reprieve from work, regardless of whether it happened to be, you know, uh, overlap with the weekend or, or a non-traditional, you know, middle-of-the-week days off. Those officers, um, you would have to, like, pry them away from, uh, from those days off. So unfortunately, with officer shortage and manpower issues that we've been facing, it just has not been uh, logistically feasible to maintain that schedule. I mean, yeah. The one thing also is that it will probably only apply to people who do nine to five jobs. Hourly wage workers won't be able to get the benefit because they are not on a salary. So I, I think if you want to do it in a more equitable way, you would want to make sure that the, everyone could have the benefit of having you know, a four-day work week and not just people who are at a certain stature in their career that have salaries and work nine to five jobs. Bob, I'll give you the last word. I think this is going to be an issue for campaigns going forward. Mm. I think some politicians, we haven't seen it yet, but I think I think people oh, yeah. based upon this data, they're going to say, hey, we are more productive when we have, and it's better, it's more family friendly. I think this is going to be something maybe in 2024, maybe in 2028, but I think it'll be an issue. Well, certainly an issue right now in terms of the potential rail strike, right? The idea of days off, yeah. the idea of the essential workers, it's looming in the background, everyone. A great conversation. And 100% of us said, why not? Four <laughs> days. That's good. Except for you watching this show. I'll still be back. Thanks for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.